Lee here. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have part two of my discussion with Jamie Club. It's just shy of an hour, so I won't take up too much time with an introduction today. Part one is only available on Jamie's show, so there's a link in the show notes if you haven't already listened. But assuming you have, here's part two. Enjoy. And it was interesting when you mentioned you had students who went to South Africa, because I think that shows how self-protection, not only self-defense is a legal definition, but self-protection as a whole changes depending on you know, the environment and where we are you know, geographically, where it has been over time. And you know, things like you know, age and gender. So I think as it's an ex, you know, you're an expert in this kind of area and it's, it's a real good passion of yours, I'd be interested to see if you could give us some demonstrations of the differences between self-protection for like adults and self-protection for teens and um, younger kids. Really, the best way to uh, look at the differences between it was uh, um, the, the history of um, of why I started teaching uh, re- realistic uh, martial arts, realistic uh, self protection for children. So I started running a club. Um, I knew straight away that uh, it was important to have children's classes. I mean, certainly from a, a business point of view, I won't be completely. Uh, I'll be completely straight about that. Um, I, I never did run a, a very large club in the end because of um, a lot of different reasons, um, but. We began. Um, we, we began with the children's classes, and that was the, that, that was uh, popular straight away. And I was keen to teach the children um, what I knew about self protection and self defence. I was keen to transfer the uh, Jeff Thompson sort of methodology over to them because the argument was was um, you know these are some of the most vulnerable people in society. And the more I looked into it, and the more that I discussed things with children, and the more research I did, the more I, I thought. Uh, you know, children are more likely to be exposed to violence than anybody, anyone else. I mean, when you go to school, there is, you know, a 50-50 chance with a lot of kids that they're going to encounter some form of violence there, no matter what sort of school they go to as well, in, in the form of play fights, in the form of confrontation. You know, children are still learning boundaries and barriers and um, in, 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 with regards to social interaction. You know, children, depending on their age group, you know, will instinctively lash out um, when they get frustrated frustrated or angry with someone um, you know fights you know are more likely to happen between children than they are between um, normal um, adults so with all that in mind you know you've got that sort of exposure to them and they you know that you know, th- this becomes really, really relevant. That's before you start getting into the danger that they have from um, people who are older than them, uh, both uh, older children um, and uh, and adults. You know, so they've you know they get they encounter all sorts of risks. Um, ch- children only a few years older than them can make a, a, a huge amount of difference between a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old, or a seven-year-old and a teenager, um, or a you know seven-year-old and and an adult, and they have a wide range. Of different risks so with all that in mind I was thinking well why are we depriving them of a realistic self-protection system because again there was this issue um, certainly uh, from a uh, legal um, fear uh, that, that, they, that uh, instructors had about teaching children um, who weren't responsible, and uh, that, you know th- there is some there's some good scientific grounding mentally with regards to you know 
you know, when, when is a child to be considered to be responsible for their actions? Uh, you know, when we're teaching them uh, different techniques, um, certainly set techniques that could be, could be perceived as being lethal techniques, such as strangles, uh, where, are, um, in, you know, and you're teaching them to people who are um, mentally um, not responsible for their actions. You know, is that irresponsible of us to teach them that? Uh, and again, I balanced it with, well, we, you know, a ten-year-old child in in this country, uh, rightly or wrongly, can be tried for a for a crime where they're, uh, they're they're as responsible as an adult. Is that correct? You know, in terms yeah, of that, that, yeah, that's right. That's the, um, but for, for for most crimes, that, that that's yes. the age. Yeah, that's the starting age. Yes. Yeah, and again, again highly contentious subject, um, and it's not the same across the world. But uh, having said that, even if we took that away, um, most uh, adults. Um, in, involved in the teaching sector, involved in education, um, would uh, you know believe that there's a you know children around that age should be a, able to cross the road on their own, for example. They should be given um, so that's a type of responsibility for their own safety. So what then carries on from that? Well, they should be able to um, be able to protect themselves because if you're going to give them an independence and you're going to allow them at a certain age to have an independence, that should also marry up with what skills you're going to be giving them. So if you could say, um, okay, well it's perfectly acceptable to allow a, a child to go out on their own at a certain age well then you should also be saying well they should be equipped with certain um, basic skills that will keep them safe and some of those skills arguably should be self-protection they are a target they're a vulnerable target uh, both for um, uh, amongst their peers but also of course adults as well so yeah that's gen generally is my balancing with um, with what techniques I teach I teach children and, and it's uh, it's it's not always easy um, you know you have to judge it on a person by person um, uh, uh, case um, obviously uh, but also um, when we start getting into martial arts uh, we get um, often tied up about um, some of the more nastier direct techniques shall we say, things like sure. getting hit in the throat, um, eye gouges, uh, bites. But if you're going to teach a child to punch, um, my great-grandfather, my, sorry, my great-great-grandfather was killed by a punch. So someone punched him and, uh, and he hit his head, head on the cobbles. Um, that's, a, that's a different story altogether. And another member of my family, a similar thing happened to him and that they were, they were from the traveling community. Um, it was um, it was probably a bare knuckle um, boxing fight, and um, was exp it was explained in that way as being a, an assault situation. But anyway, um, that, that's what happened to him, and that's what happened to one of his relations as well. Um, and we, we hear this all the time. A sweep, um, I, I believe. Um, I know there was a. Um, a very famous uh, karate competitor, freestyle karate competitor, who swept somebody, and uh, it was a self-defense situation, and uh, he was prosecuted for it. But he swept somebody, and they hit their head on the curb, and uh, and the person died as a result of that. So, and, you know, these are techniques that would not necessarily be considered to be lethal. I mean, they're often fundamental techniques that you'll find in a martial arts class. You know, children in a judo class will learn how to sweep very early on. Children in a karate class will learn how to punch from the first lesson onwards. So when we we get into things like uh, stuff that seems to be um, more lethal, um, things like uh, hitting somebody in the throat, 
well, you know, a punch only has to be adjusted to be to hit somebody in, in, in the throat. And we know under pressure, you, you generally teach people to strike center of mass at the same way as that you would teach somebody with firearms you know, to hit center of mass. That tends to be it. You, you're not going to the accuracy in a high stressful, highly stressful situation um, is going to be quite hard to, to measure, certainly from a self-defense point of view. So in terms of techniques and training different between children and adults, uh, there is a difference. But again, you have to judge it on a case by case basis. You have to decide on level of responsibility but you also then have to you know take a bigger picture of this you know um uh, why would a child ever need to know how to choke another uh, another child that sounds terrible that sounds like um and you're looking at the competitive point of view um you know it's, it's present in bjj competitions um there's a lot of arguments about that and you could see it from one point of view saying oh that's really irresponsible that's really bad okay well then let's change the situation you've got uh, we know that children um, do kill each other and children have killed each other and there are continuing cases where that's happened there's plenty of it i've got a whole book behind me about just specializing in that area um so a child's being attacked by another child and another child decides to intervene in that situation is there it's their judgment call that they have for that situation um to save another child um a rear naked choke is um, one of the best techniques that, that, that you could use to subdue somebody in that kind of situation it's a pleasant thing or it might they might need it in a in a grappling situation but again it's at trying to teach them everything that follows on from it it's when i came to teaching preemptive striking um you know a lot of people were shocked that i was going to teach children preemptive striking my attitude to that was like am i going to teach them self-protection or not you know that's my straight there's no point in me teaching it's irresponsible of me to teach them techniques that are not going to be effective for them you know why should they be hamstrung um when they are more vulnerable um than uh, than, than adults so there was you know there was that argument as well i think you have a it's almost like a difficult choice to make because um you know, I think this happens with self-defense across the board or self-protection across the board is the people who need it the most are, as you said, you know, the most vulnerable people um, or, or can be. And they might have, you know, they might be cognitive, you know, you know, disabilities or issues regarding this, whether that's due to, you know, age or not. And then you've got to see, can you entrust um, these students, you know, who are vulnerable? Um, with these kind of techniques. Now, I remember being a kid, I think I mean, we've proudly discussed my love for pro wrestling before, and they got all, you know, the sleeper hold you'd see in lots, lots of wrestling as a, as a kid. I've been doing this with my friends a lot when I'm 10, 11, 12, when we're, we're play fighting. But as a 10, 11 year old, I, you know, there was an instinctive understanding that this is really dangerous when I wrap my hands around somebody's neck and throat. But I'm not sure how widespread that kind of belief is among you know, you know kids um i know for me i would never want to do that to somebody because I, I and if i would um I, I would hope and i'd be doing it in a situation like you mentioned you know you're, you're you're a third party trying to get involved to save another kid's life i think um, when i was around 10 11 years old i understood that but i'm not sure if if others do i don't know what your experiences with with students that age and what you find well, as I said, it's a case by case um, situation. Um, we know, as I said, there is some, you know, there's, there is there is scientific grounding with regards to a child's mental development stages. So we, you know, we have to be, you know, we have to take that into consideration when we are teaching any child. But 
that brings me back to what I was just um, talking about with the preemptive strike. Uh, I was able to teach preemptive striking in schools across the country in front of headmasters, in front of headmistresses, in front of other teachers, and they completely accepted my justification for teaching it when they'd seen the way that I'd taught it. So I wasn't just teaching people to strike preemptively. When they realised that when we came to do the preemptive strike, we'd already gone through uh, role plays and um, escape, um, tactical escape methods. Um, we had um, done dissuasion methods. We'd role played this, actually not given it lip service, but gone through that. And everything was based purely on, so when you looked at it going, oh yeah, they are preemptively striking, but that person's preemptively striking once they've put a barrier up between the other, uh, between them and another person. Um, and, and the underlining principles are being taught uh, at, at that point. Um, so, and again, you know, some of the grappling techniques and strangles and stuff like that, the, the, the advantage you do have with some of that is, that, is that is the adjustments that you can make with it as well. I mean, again, it's like when you're again, we're teaching, like, teaching adults and funny enough, it goes back to the previous uh, podcast that we had together um, with regards to uh, you know, um, different scenarios, different situations. And um, you look at uh, mid-level and low-level threat situations. And this is where grappling really, really dominates. You know, you know, you're at a, you know, you're at a barbecue and you've got drunk un Uncle Herbert and that gets, gets a bit out of hand, okay, and he just needs to be just restrained. Um, you know, that's where your grappling is so, you know, effective. And, and you're, the likelihood you, you're going to be involved in more situations like that than you are in high-risk situations. I'm a big, you know, I'm very much uh, um, about teaching high-risk stuff first because i think it's easier to scale down than it is to build up but when you do get to that part of it and you're saying well yeah but the majority of situations you're likely to be involved in are ones where you need um you know mid-level low-level um controlling methods and rear naked choke you know at its extreme end is a killing method it's, it's probably one of the very few um techniques that you can do with any stranglehold um uh, you know that that is the you, you can kill somebody with your bare hands. That's that. That is a demonstration of what you know what, what can happen. But um, as it's applied, um, as you as you learn it, um, it, again, it's a good sort of a, 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 a should we say a taming device when you're trying to to control somebody. You've got somebody in a in a, in a hold, and then you've got their, your arm around their, their, their neck. And it, again, it it can be modified. It can be you know the, the person there becomes aware as they start to find it very difficult to breathe, or even if they start feeling a bit dizzy. Or, or that kind of thing and you're adjusting that and you're saying look you know it, it, calm down come on let's you know let, you know let's you know let, let's rethink this <laughs> okay whatever whatever method you're using um again you know it's it is difficult so, so, so when it comes to teaching children that but um the other part difference between teaching children and adults is the tactical um side of it as well um so that you know that is very much addressing the sort of responsibility side of it which as i said is not easy it's not an easy one to do and it's easy for some people they just don't teach it they just don't they decide not to teach children self-protection which is fine so long as you've done you're not advertising that um i, I haven't got a, I, know, I haven't got a problem with that but if you are going to teach realistic self-protection then you embrace uh the, the problems that where that comes from and you work hard to make sure that everything you teach is taught within context and i think it's so important to teach children context anyway and that's a real passion of mine anyway. I think, um, you know, I'm always very wary of centering um, uh, literature that would be made available to them, you know, uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. You know, uh, you know, we start moving that from it, then they don't, 
don't have an understanding of different circumstances and why certain injustices happened at certain times. If you just start, you know, uh, you know, that, that, that's a different subject altogether. But again, you're looking at that as a type of censorship through through martial art training. There is no, um, you know, children's self-protection um, really in many ways it, it's, it's, it's quite brutal because it needs to be very efficient methods that they can use a small person can use effectively in order to uh, get themselves into a position of safety um, tactically there are other considerations that you have to take on take on board uh, first of all um, you know uh, tactical escape becomes really really important uh, and again this is something that's transferred over into teaching teenagers and uh, teaching adults as well a, a strong emphasis on accessing uh, escape place uh, um, points of escape uh, accessing safe places um, getting children um, to use their size to their advantage you know early on you know we, we do lots of you know fun games I noticed how a lot of martial arts clubs wasted their time teaching uh, you know fun games but uh they had no direct relevance to the training that they would be that, that they were going to do for the rest of the lesson and my attitude was why not just have exercises that are directly relevant and actually you know become really important but yes they're fun as well you know there's so much you can get from a game of tig um in a game of bulldogs for example tig and bulldog they they, they make a, a lot of my warm-ups with my juniors when we're doing salt protection based days because there's so much and so many ways you can adapt this game to get your students thinking about gains to safety points, you know, avoiding danger, um, you know, helping others if they have to. There's so many different variables you can throw in there, um, yes. which I do in my class. Mm -hmm. And if you could just share some of the games you use, Jamie, I think that'd be really useful for our Yeah, viewers. well, we do. We, do, we often start start off with build up tag because build build up tag or build up tag or um, there's lots of different expressions. I guarantee wherever I teach it that someone else has got a different name for it but in, in essence you've got one or two people who are it and uh, whoever they tag um, joins their side you give them a limited amount of time on a base so we get rid of all that we make sure that's all sorted because you know children are great for for trying to work the rules i mean that's another subject altogether about how people work their training environments how they adapt to it. and i know we're going to discuss that later with regards to visualization training but yeah we, we get that sorted so the idea is they've got to try and get to base and inevitably you end up with um, one or two survivors at the very end who don't get tigged and don't get joining um, the group so um, and again as a game on its own it's fun it's a warm-up but then the importance here is and again this underlines just like all the stuff I was talking to you about before about teaching children is getting the principles right so you know the game can just be a fun game but if, it, but if it's just a game in itself they don't learn anything from it but if yeah. after you've done it uh, once or twice you then say to everybody what have we learned from this why do you think we do this first of all and when they start understanding okay it's an avoidance game it's um, and then you start asking the people who do the ta tagging you know why did you uh, who did you pick what was your tactic what did you do and you start learning different types of predator um, responses you know some people are more opportunistic um, other people are more tactical and, they, and these are different types of predators that we can go all the way right up to you know a criminal predator you know some criminal predators plan some criminals um, are more opportunistic um, and yes, this is you find this from muggers through to rapists murderers they, they have this and this comes out in the game this comes out in a children's game just reminded me of a, a fun thing which happened in one of my classes I got I got two brothers in my class. One's um, a lot smaller than the other. He's probably one of the youngest in my, my kids' class. He's, a, he's about six, and the, the majority of the class are around eight, nine, ten years old. So there's a little bit of a size and speed difference. And we, we played the game you mentioned um, plenty of times. And uh, because of his size, he get he gets you know the, 
the people you want to tag or tag other people, they'll go for him because he's the smallest in the group. He's an easy target. Um, and then one time I was watching it and he, he fooled me. Um, at the end of the game, I was like, okay, so there's just two or three people left. And he put his hand up and said, no one's tagged him yet. And I said, oh, yeah, you, you, you're in the middle tagging other people. And he said, yeah, but I, I did that because I, I didn't want anyone to tag me. And I checked around the class, and I think he was telling the truth. The other kid said, oh, yeah, none of us, none of us have tagged him. So it, it took him about four weeks, but he, he learned the skill to, like, adapt and and yeah, this is, yeah, again, and that's what you really have to watch, don't you? Because you know that then that starts. Um, you know, there's things you can draw from that. You can understand tactically. Like I understand when people will go, "I, I want to tag the big guys because then they're, then they're on my team. They're recruiting." Okay, which is which is good. Is the thing you can you can take from that? I mean, that a on its raw basis, we're looking at strategy, and that helps us understand about the sort of the planned type of predator, the organised predator, so to speak, as opposed to the disorganised, the instinctive sort of predator. So that, that, that part of it's there, but also um, how people recruit as well, you know, how, how things work on them. That's working now in a, in a microcosmic situation there where you're, you're, you're getting recruits, um, but also how people will do that, you know, how bullies will, will recruit um, followers, they'll recruit uh, people um, on their side to, to influence situations. You know, that comes down to things like, you know, peer pressure and uh, getting in with the wrong crowds you know they're all they're all you know areas of awareness that we can we can talk about we can we can teach um so you know that comes down too but again yeah just come back to you know just what you're just saying there people learned how to work the game so you have to you know again it, it, if, you, if you're doing this always as your warm-up then this is what's going to start to happen as well so that's where you then have to mix up your games so often you know in a seminar i will then progress that to uh, um, a game with head guards on where uh, you've got people restricted to grappling and people restricted to striking now that can you know, you do that to adults, you put, and especially if you do it on a one-on-one -on -one with adults, that can become an incredibly intense form of pressure testing. You, if you pick grappling versus striking, where two people have got two different objectives, which does well to simulate um, real-life violence. I mean, this is often what we're dealing with, is a symmetrical, um, sorry, an asymmetrical situation. We are, we are generally looking at a kind of scenario um, for, for pressure testing. We don't need to be so worried about you know no rules and all this sort of thing and um you know at one end of the scale and then the other end of the scale you've got people trying to you know do some form of um stage it's almost like they, they get they get all hung up on staging scenario work and you're going yeah but you know the truth is you cannot prepare for every single individual scenario it's impossible and even if it was possible to train for a larger number of them how many of these are going to go before you're really diluting your training you know so yeah we trained how to defend ourselves in a bar this week but we haven't ever trained again you know we need you know next next week it's in an ice rink next week it's in a you know it's 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 in a it's in a living room next week it's in a cubicle so, you know there's certain ones you can like you can say and i'm not against scenario based training but i think you should you should probably pick a small selection of scenarios that have got a general broad um principles can be pulled from that yeah, you, you, you're structuring your training to be, you know, efficient and effective. So, yeah, if you don't need, I mean, unless you're going to train, like you said, like all the time in certain areas, you, you, can, you can select maybe four or five different venues or different, you know, circumstances and, and work drills which encompass most things that way. And I think that's probably a far more efficient way of training.
Yeah, and the other, the other problem, of course, then you've got with that is then is also the safety angle of that. So, um, you know, what, you know, how how much can you pressure test that? So, obviously, we know the best way, the safest way to pressure test things is, where, is when people are wearing the right protective equipment, the area is safe. You know, people aren't going to land on on, on uh, sharp edges as they would do in a real life situation. So, we've all got that kind of, and people just generally, and again. Which again, which we will be covering with the visualization, but it seems like it seems to be creeping into this one now all the time. Um, you will start if you if you do these scenarios too often as well, then people will start working the game. They would they can't help themselves. You do as a survivor, you find what's what's the best way that works it. So, which is why you know I I don't spend such a tremendous amount of time with self protection training. It's such an important part of what I do, but I, I spend more time on attribute training because. Uh, you know, at least you've got people. Then they're, they're going to develop some some core um, fighting abilities that they can then they can then bring back to that self protection line. Um, just before we move out of the whole children's. Um, adult comparisons the other thing of course um it's not only the different types of uh, you know children face different types of asymmetrical um uh, uh, enemies um as said you know we, they do peer-on-peer -peer stuff so that's important but they've also got to be dealing with people with longer ranges and we this this came out with trial and error with us um back when i was running the club with the children we would have uh, um dealing with people who had much longer range um and we would pressure test a few things you know we'd have adult going there with uh, groin guards on so we thought well okay you know child you know roughly they can strike to the groin it's a it's, it's a good you know it's a good target for them to hit until you take into, into consideration that adults have got much longer arms proportionally to the average child which will certainly to the average sort of 10 10 years and under uh around that you know the average adult's going to be um proportionally much larger than they are um they're going to much longer range so good luck trying to get that groin you know when they can hold you at that that length or you've already cleared it because you're you're um, you're now being picked up so there were things that were really important there, teaching children on how to um, attack what comes towards them. And this does come, brings us back to the previous podcast when we talked about, you know, this principle-based approach. So when it came to preemptive striking, um, you know, originally I was taught just to headhunt. Okay, that was very much the Jeff Thompson approach. I mean, we were taught to headhunt, and there's some valid points. It definitely is, you know, if you can get after the head, then great. That's the target that you want to be aiming towards. And a lot of the time, that's a very shortcut way of, of, of dealing with it. Um, however, you know, ranges can happen, you know, and uh, I was at a, I was at a, uh, a seminar and, um, and funny enough, it was my wife, bless her, who's um, it's quite diminutive. Um, and she had to, um, uh, in, 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 in stature only, I have to say, <laughs> everything else, she, <laughs> everything else she completely outmatches me. But uh, she, she had to raise it and said, yeah, but what happens if you can't reach the head? And of course, so immediately my response to that was, um, you know, uh, okay, well, um, thanks for that. Um, I'll, uh, okay, um, you hit your head height. So that then became the generic principle for teaching people. So you, know, you hit your head height, and when the head becomes available, then you obviously strike to the head, but then start hitting at your head height. Because of course that brings in things like, um, you know, you could be seated, you know, and you're trying to defend from a seated position. And a lot of the time you used to train from seated position was how to get up and strike, but you can't always get up and strike. You know, if I'm sat here talking to you now and an assault situation came in here, my knees are under um, a desk at the moment um, as I'm, I'm talking to you and uh, the, the chair I've got here, my 
very lovely ergonomic chair I've got here, which my back's thanking me for, has got armrests here that will probably get in the way a bit as well. So, um, you know, something came in quickly here, I would need to be able to, um, you know, strike at my head height, which might be the groin area, it might be the stomach, um, but again, strike to my head area. So that seemed like a good idea. But then you start bringing the situation with children when you see this severe size differences and how range really is used a lot by an enemy. We don't consider, we often think, oh, range, is, that's a sport thing, you know, that's, that's very much a sport thing, you know, people using jabs or using teeps or uh, posting or things like that. We think of them as very much more a sports-based idea, but people do use it. Under pressure, they, they will use range all the time, they'll use the length of their arms um, to, uh, to to hold off people, to uh, to control people at arm's length, particularly with kids. This is what happens with kids. Um, you know, an adult will grab a kid's wrists, okay, and then and and they won't necessarily hug them in. They might hug them and pick them up, by which point things like the groin and that are going to be off target anyway, okay. Um, or they will push them, you know, and hold them at arm's length, and they can they can do that, and the children can't access the targets that they want. So we have to then say, well, you know, ideally the head. If not, head height, but then anything that comes into your space, you know, which kind of you know lends itself a bit to the Filipino systems. Like by attacking whatever comes towards you, this is where you start teaching about the biting and uh, and, and even even the, um, the finger breaks. Well, wouldn't be necessarily a finger break with it, with with, it, with a child, but uh, certainly attacking fingers, attacking hands as it comes towards you, and even just simply slapping away hands. I mean, that's the first thing that we taught, which was you know because we'd already taught them a, a simple peer on peer preemptive striking drill. Once uh, the hand comes into there, slapping the hand hand away. There's nothing you know. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a mechanical defense after all. It may it may look you know, pretty lame, but you know, that's, you know, they're used to slapping away hands as they come towards them and then making and then exiting that that's effective. That's, you know, that, that's straightforward. It's effective. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's parrying in boxing. Um, but again, you know, they're attacking the hand and once, you know, if they grabbed hold of it, they, you know, they're used to instinctively biting, um, instinctively attacking the fingers. Um, we've, and, uh, and stamping on the feet. I mean, when we put it under pressure, um, we, as I mentioned earlier on before, we had, I had, um, somebody padded up and uh he said that uh, they weren't reaching the groin shots i mean i've seen other situations where kids have you know they've, they've kicked adults in the uh, groin when they've um, been doing a, a pressure test situation and it worked but what was working quite um consistently was attacking the feet um stamping on the feet um biting the hands uh you know slapping away the hands these are all the things that were coming out in the pressure test and they seem to consist work whenever we've done that under scenarios whereas things like going for the groin is you know less you know less effective um, and then it's backed up by case studies you know we've noticed in a number of times that when a child has escaped from an adult um, which again debunked you know the, the view that I was getting across from a lot of self-protection instructors who were saying you know come on be realistic you know child can't beat an adult can't yeah well you're now you know, going back to what we, we, we preach, that it's not about winning a fight here. We're not trying to teach a child to yeah. be able to beat an adult. We're teaching a child a method in order to be able to escape from an adult. So first of all, you know, they've been teaching all this um, exiting, tactical escapes, and how to really work that to a child's advantage, not just teaching them run away. I mean, that's a that's a lip service thing that Ian and I really want to address in our seminar you know, when we get around to, to, to doing that one is the, the lip service offered to running away, you know, and uh, it, it does my head in me with a bunch martial artists and it comes to self-defense and 
kind of like part, part of what I call the um, the counter enlightenment. You know, this is what we're seeing now with more. Yeah, yeah. This this is definitely something. Again, again, you know, we'll refer to that a bit later on. But that's a classic example of it. You know, so you know, the running away thing. You know, learn you learn so much with kids about tactical escape learning. Yeah. I mean, there are whole systems of, of escape. You know, that's where you know parkour allegedly comes from. Is a, mm-hmm. a system. It, it is one of those things where um, I think it's easy to think you only need to give you lip service because it's only running away. But when you uh, I remember when I first started training in a more realistic way, and uh, I've already mentioned before about learning that you know side control, you know, doing self protection to try and escape is a far better position than being on the full mount, which I'd never, from a combative sports perspective, I never would have thought that. Same with running away, I, I started to realize really quickly when I'm running away, especially when I'm doing multiple person drills or, or watching back the way I've been running away, I used to realize, well, what the hell was I doing? I thought this was easy. I'm just running away. But you you can see all the errors you're making and how you're running, where you're running, how blind and, and clueless you can be. And, and even when you get in, into it, and you know, I, I run into like corners of rooms and things. It, it's that thing where you've got to have a structure. You've got to have information based on how to do it. And you've got to practice doing it. And it's the same for adults, I think, as well as kids. I, I learn a lot watching my kids practice running away. And the drill you mentioned before uh, about, you know, hitting the hands, biting, and you know, grabbing the fingers, slapping away, stomping the feet, that's something me and you have spoken about before, Jamie, because as, as I've been trying to develop the self-protection side of my karate club, we've had chats and we've had discussions, and I know it's only anecdotal evidence to add on to this, but that drill works really well. And then with the running away drills we do, I've learned a lot from my kids about you know, things which work well, things which are bad, and I've been able to feed that back through my, my classes. Yeah, and working over obstacles and all that sort of thing as well. There's, you know, there's, there's loads of extra things there. And, also, and then that also sometimes brings us into incidental weaponry and things like that, which is, again, important things to, you know, for kids to do. I mean, because, you know, they are at such a severe disadvantage against a, a, against an adult. Um, but again, it, and again, it escalates the whole importance of it. And, and that then transferred over to my adult training because I started saying, well, you know, if I'm telling kids to do this, why am I telling adults to be more actively engaged in their self-protection situation? They, they're also faced with you know life or death situations and uh, and things like that so yeah you know there are you know, there are differences but at the same time they they influence each other i think um and i think you know there's there's a lot of uh, you know straw man arguments are often put forward which um not always intentional and one of them is the running away one you know, you know good argument put across by people who are, who are who are saying um just telling people to run away is not an effective form of self-defense um and you're going yeah, yeah okay yeah i uh, i can understand that it's all, if all you're telling people to do is just run away run away however you like to run away okay. you're just teaching if that's them. if that's yeah. the totality then yes. yeah, yeah. then fair enough but if you're then saying that um to escape from a situation is not the best port, you know, course of action um, in most situations, not all, I appreciate, you know, everything from, you know, citizens arrest situations to situations where you just simply cannot escape from a certain place, then um, uh, in the majority of places, then, then, I, then I disagree, you know, tactical escape is a very, very effective and proven to be effective method uh, it, um, in, in, uh, in most situations. So, um, you know, that's, you know, that is really, really important. But uh, there's, uh, you know, this all then lends itself to, as I say, this sort of counter-enlightenment uh, thing that we're seeing at the moment with uh, people saying, well, you know, preemptive striking uh, is, is, not, is not really as effective as people make out it is. And I've seen some emergencies on that, you know, even, even some people even trying to, you know, challenge the legal side of it as well, saying, oh, you know, oh, you, you know, 
you think it's going to be as simple as that, but it's not. And you're going, well, understand context. That's the whole point of teaching it. You know, it's, uh, you know, and that goes the same thing with, uh, you know, with, with running away and that kind of escape situation. So as we're talking about fence and, and striking from the fence, I just wondered if you could share some thoughts on um, how you structure your physical side of the self-protection training. I would say the three Ps for, uh, for the hard skill side of self-protection, you know, what we Know, loosely called self-defense um, and that is uh, preemptive proactive and pressure tested um, because I just got sick of so many people coming to me and asking you know you know is this style good for self-defense is this style good for self-protection and that's my criteria I said first of all you know are they teaching self-protection you know are they teaching personal security are you learning you know, everything from the importance of good attitude and awareness and uh, controlling adrenaline and uh, the chemical reaction within your body in a fear situation the legal side of it all to dealing with the aftermath and, and all those sort of sides of it all and if that's being addressed that's great but on your physical side of it that's the question they're asking you they're asking you know does this stuff work if, this, if it goes physical are these skills going to work for me and my, my view is like you know anything works and everything works but is the instructor um teaching you um the uh, how to um be preemptive um are they then teaching to be proactive? Because this is often the issue that you get uh, with a lot of, uh, and I noticed this very early on, you know, people would embrace concepts like the fence. And I've seen mutations, by the way. I've seen people who say they're teaching the fence. And so you get like people who um, start using the fence, uh, sorry, teaching the fence, and, uh, and, they're, and they're, they're teaching it without the true, in a way that is not, in line with the reason why it was invented in the first place. This is why I will say the, the fence is, um, it's a, it's a concept, not a technique. Yeah. You know, when people do refer to it as a technique, I, I get, you know, I say, I, I don't like to think about it. It's a concept, you know, don't, the fence isn't a certain hand gesture. You know, the, the fence is simply a boundary that you are setting between you and uh, a, a, an antagonist, a predator, um, and for, for you to uh, facilitate a preemptive strike um, if needed. I, I do see it, uh, I think this is kind of what you, you may be referring to, is that I'm, that I'm with you, it's a concept, it's an idea full of being able to control the range and strike first. I do see a lot of people using it now as a, it's essentially a guard position to block from. And absolutely, I yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that. It's missed as soon as that starts to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you know, people could take stuff from it. I mean, when I was, you know, when I did some training with John Anderson, um, I've got it on a, it's a video recording of a private lesson that I did with John Anderson. Uh, a couple actually we did, I did when I interviewed him. And he was talking about blocking, but his concept of blocking was not so much like blocking strikes. He was talking about controlling the center line when you were, if you're using hand gestures and you're kind of blocking the person as such. But it was not a reactive response. You were being preemptive and everything was geared towards being preemptive and proactive. I mean, I appreciate that. That's, um, that's become a buzzword um, since the 1990s and all that sort of thing. But uh, it, it does it does explain properly what we uh, what we want to see. So it's all well and good teaching someone how to be preemptive. So we've got those who are teaching uh, the fence incorrectly. They're teaching to block off the fence, you know, which seems you know, ridiculous. Or teaching to most importantly, they're teaching to react off the fence. And the whole point of the fence is that it's not reactive; it's proactive. You are you are controlling everything. You are, you know, I always you know just explain this to the children, and then not across to the to my adults. Is that you know self protection is the concept of taking control. You're having to take control of that situation. You're not. Um, you might be responding to a situation that uh, is happening, but you're 
trying not to react to it. You're trying to immediately take control of everything, whether it's the conversation, uh, whether it's uh, the, the you know the mental side of it as much as possible to, to stop it from becoming physical, um, or you know tactically, strategically, the physical side of it. So um, you know, then you get some people who will teach you preemptive, and they'll teach the preemptive strike, and it'll be fine how they teach it. They'll teach us the fence, but once that bit is covered then it all goes back to being reactive again and then, then then we're suddenly down to oh yeah we've got a block to this and we've got a counter to this and you're countering all this sort of thing and particularly with weapon stuff as well you know that becomes like you're waiting for the person to attack with a weapon and you're waiting for that so and you're going well hold on a second you know where where is all this preemption idea come from the, the underlying principle that should be taken from preemption is that you need to be proactive and it's no there's no to and fro there's no um, waiting for their turn and anticipating them. It's all about you getting uh, getting on the front foot and staying on the front foot as much as possible. And then that even comes across to things like uh, the cover or shelling, you know, where people, you know, you know, they, they, they cover their heads in various different ways. I've seen a lot of people teaching that as a reactive drill. They, you know, they put their hands up to them. The point of that was more like you are... Um, it, I mean, there's different people teach you for different things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you can use the cover reactively. Of course, you can in a combat sport. But from a self-defense perspective, and to keep keep this around point going about uh, preemption and proactivity, uh, this is when you have been already hit, already been attacked, and you are immediately getting back on that front foot again. So you don't, you're not responding to the haymaker as in you're using the cover to block the haymaker. You've been hit by the haymaker and by some luck or um you are still with it so you immediately shell up or cover and then drive in back it straight into the antagonist that's the point it becomes proactive i, th I think we get um there's almost an inning like it gets incongruent where we have a a lot of people doing a very you know proactive or preemptive strike to start with and that's kind of just added on to reactive and defensive techniques of the rest of their system absolutely yeah and, and it's about i mean i use the cover proactively and i've i don't use a cover reactively but i i will put myself in a position where where i'm on the back foot so maybe my hands are up to try and protect my head but that's definitely never taught as okay this is a defensive cover this is a i'm in a shit situation now i might cover as i drive forward the difference between i'm not trying to be reactive i'm being here's a situation Here's how I take control of it. I think that's um, the difference between the preemption and proactiveness. As, as soon as you're aware of what's happening, you're being proactive straight away. And yeah. I, I see um, I see that's lost in a lot of systems, especially on the self-protection side. Obviously, on a combat sports side of things, more consensual violence bases, that to and fro in that having a defensive skill set, I think can be more important um, than on the self-protection side of things. And just to float over to, to an, another um, topic we can look at, you mentioned earlier regarding you do a lot more attribute training. And I find in the, in the karate world and, and the practical or applied karate world we have, lots of people who can break down our forms, our kata, and have really good applications. So this low block is, a, is an arm bar or, or you know, this move can be a choke or a strangle. And they're really good at breaking down katas and having that analysis done but they're not so great then at being able to apply their skills in, you know, when, when it's under pressure because being able to develop skills to apply locks and throws, takedowns or striking or clinching, while you can analyze them and find them in solo moves, being able to apply them and to do them properly and effectively, that's a whole other set of skills and abilities you need. And 
you know, I, I think of the likes of Ian Abernethy, who, do, who does both of them really well. You know, he can, you know, excellently, he, he can break down catters. And then there's, he's got a whole system of how he trains these techniques to make them really effective. And I, I just wondered from, from your side of things, from your background, what kind of attribute training do you do and how do you develop these effective skills? Because you've done a lot of martial arts and I think if you can go through just maybe a few arts where you've picked up some really good, not necessarily techniques from, but you know, training methods and how you kind of applied them together to create what you have now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any denying that um, the world of mixed martial arts provides us um, with a lot of rich material for, 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 for training. Um, I'm not, not going it, it, to... It's... If, if I was to t tell anybody who's practicing any particular martial art um, or doing a self-protection system, if they wanted to look at an easy access place to go to, I would say mixed martial arts um, in the respect that it makes you cross train. It makes you, um, it's, it's, it's definitely got, it's definitely its own um, system, um, which is decided within its rule set. Um, and uh, it's more than it's all its components. You know, it's its own system from that. In order to learn it properly, you have to learn the different components as well. I found that, what happened, what the, my best way to teach people would be to do a 10 hour course on self-protection, which would include homework. And the idea is that the 10 hours that, they, that, that the people, um, my clients who would train with me, that would be mainly made up of um, a lot of physical skills um, and they'd be pointed in the right direction to all the soft skills, stuff I'd send them home with, or I'd do it through a PowerPoint display and things like that. Um, so we'd, but, but above all, it would be about 10, 10 hours of, of, of training because that's, you know, that's the sort of thing that you'd expect from a person to learn first aid. And I think from that, you'd have some, good foundations there that they could go away doing. And within that 10 hour course, they will have pressure tested their skills in some shape or form. Um, they will have uh, drilled um, all the basics um, that, that you would expect from that. But if they then need something that's a bit more specific, then fair enough, then another 10 hour course working on that particular area would be important to them if they're going into um, personal security, uh, they're going involved in cl you know, close security or, or areas like that, or they're going to a certain uh, area that was um, different that from you know, that needs more than just general self-protection training. Then, yeah, fair enough. Do a bolt-on course from that. that. That makes sense. However, you know, if in general they've you know they've done they've done their general self-protection, the attitude then is to say, well, you know, you enjoy doing it. And there's nothing wrong with saying you enjoy doing it. You know, they enjoy the, the feeling of hitting pads. They enjoy the feeling of of, uh, of of interacting, of combat, or that side of it. We say, well, you know, the danger is that if we stay too long, I think, in just focusing purely within the self-protection, self-defense area mutations happen what happens is is that you you start getting this thing within the group that you're training with or even on a one-to-one -one where you start adding on extra moves adding on extra stuff and you start exploring extra things and before you know it, you know, humans are naturally creative and then you that's when you really start getting into a lot of um uh, um, hypothesizing about things that aren't being tested, that aren't going out there. Um, and th this is where you get the art. This is where you get the system developing. Um, and uh, you've got to be very, you know, I think you need to be careful about that. Now, my view uh, and the way that I teach is that uh, at the end of a 10-hour course, then start exploring something else. Um, you know, you want to be, you know, the most obvious one to go to would be Western boxing, which again is a component of mixed martial arts. Um, you know, do some Western boxing, uh, get a short course in Western boxing, just to, you know, feel what it's like, um, you know, work within that. And there you'll do things which 
you haven't necessarily learned so much in training. Footwork is very sophisticated in Western boxing. It's probably more sophisticated than, than any other system that I've ever um, trained in and, and seen. Um, there is so much invested in Western boxing. There's financially, there is so much invested. Globally, there's so many people involved in it. Um, and uh, the drive for, the, for, for a Western boxing gym is to turn out better fighters. You know, what a great place to learn to perfect um, hand striking or any combat sport is where the interests of the people there are to produce better fighters. Uh, compare that to the majority of other martial arts classes where the interest is to get more students. Okay, so if your if your incentive is to get more students, uh, and that's where you know that, that's what's going to keep your business running, um, then you, the standards are going to be different, aren't they? To to, to when um, your drive now is to produce better fighters. If that's what that's what the financial incentive is. That's what the um, so we can learn a lot from that. And also, plus the fact that it's not just unique to. Um, our country, you know, Western boxing is practiced all over the world, and we've had uh, champions from various different countries. Uh, so it, it, there is so much that has been invested to produce better fighters. So within that area of specialized training, we can transfer that over as an attribute training. Now the danger is, is we get into what you just touched upon there, which is what I call welding. Um, so just like how you've got people who've got their systems and they learn some preemption, they learn the fence, and they decide then just to weld it onto their system. So without thinking about what that preemption means for the rest of what they're, what they're teaching. Um, so the same thing there. So someone goes into Western boxing, you learn great footwork, you learn great head movement. Um, and again, footwork um, can contribute to a lot, and so can head movement. They can, there are definite uh, self-protection, uh, self-defense things you can take from that. But we'll get onto that in a moment. But you know, obviously, you know, the reason why you've gone in there is to get your punching really good. And yes, it's boxing punching, and you're learning it against other boxers, and you're learning how to counter what they do. And you, you, you go into all that, and you should go into that emptying your glass, so to speak, and be completely there ready to learn how to box. You know, don't spend your whole time going, yeah, but in my martial art, we do this, or in my self-defense, or how will this work in the street? No, no, go there, learn how to box, learn boxing. Then you return back to the line. Now, this is the difficult part. So we've, and this is where, you know, cross-training is its own um, you know, the, the, the effective cross training is its own art, is its own craft. So, if you imagine you've gone on a, you've you've gone up a straight line that's taking you ten hours plus homework, that's your self protection course. Yeah. Then you decide to go back up that line. But before you go up that line, you you're going to go off it to start with, and you're going to go into Western boxing. You learn to go to Western boxing because you think, well, the hands are the most available tools. Striking with the hands, the most available uh, weapon, efficient weapon. So I'm going to go to the art that perfects that the art that has had the most um, investment in that um, and and uh, you know we've learned so much from it and then we take that back to the line okay so now we now we return back to the line and this is where the this is where the beauty comes into it so rather than welding you what you do is you go back to learning doing your self-protection as you've been taught to do your self-protection you don't just box and think how do I fit into that and what should happen is that that rear hand straight that ear slap 
that whatever you call it with your hand technique that you have learned within your self-defense system should now have been improved by the boxing. When you come to do your pressure testing and you're striking against somebody who's trying to grab hold of you, now your strikes should feel more efficient. And maybe you will bring across things that you've learned within boxing that you've been able to, to, to uh, take into self-protection. Practice your self-defense as you practiced it before, but now with the benefit of having trained in Western boxing. That's in, and, and that's where you find it. That's where you find there's little things far, far below the surface. You'll find that, oh my goodness, my tactical escape, because of my footwork drills have been so focused on and heavily um, you know specialized in there now when I want to do captain you know tactical escape I can move faster I can be I can be more evasive and more agile um, not because I'm just taking what I've learned from L steps and V steps and uh, uh, and all the other sort of drills that you do you know my shuffles and all that is I'm not saying you're going to do use that now in your in your um, tactical escape but despite simply practicing that and hitting you know that you know your muscle groups from all these different angles and um you know and uh, getting across this you know the agility side of it is now should improve it you know if you when you just go back to the principle of tactical escape now when you show now when you throw that straight hand right um when you're lining up from the fence because you've now trained that by stealth in hundreds and hundreds of combinations for speed and for power within boxing, it should now improve it. Just jump in there and talk about the cross-training side of things. So I started cross-training for a decade ago now, and I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. So like you mentioned, it's an art in itself. When I started looking at the catches and looking in depth of how they aren't just punches and strikes and blocks, but there are throws and takedowns in there one of the first things I did is I enrolled in a Japanese jiu-jitsu class and I was learning uh, first, firstly, I, I, I've trained in other things before this, but because I was trying to come back and like you, a lovely word there, weld it on because it doesn't fit with anything. Even if I welded it on, on week one by week six or seven or eight, it, it starts to get forgotten about or drops off because it doesn't relate to anything else we're doing. So that was one issue I was finding is I was trying to learn things in other systems and bring them in, but there was no way of integrating it. So it, it kind of got forgotten about and there's a bit of a waste to start with. So that happened a lot. Then I started to learn a little bit more and, and realize this. So I, I started looking at um, an example would be um, Osoto Gary or like just like a simple leg sweep and takedown. The jiu-jitsu class would do it a certain way. I then researched it in other arts and judo would do it a lot more dynamically and and with a lot more gripping and holding on. And then bringing it back to my class, um, there was things in there I could still take, and but I could do it in a way which which fitted the self-protection side of things I was learning. That, that was a, a long process of working out how to do that and how to mold things in. So have you got any articles, videos, podcasts on cross-training which would be useful for, for our audience? Um, well, yeah, my, my books, my, my first book, um, A Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, um, discusses um, on, on how it works. I mean, that's, that's a good place to start off with, Under's Victory. That's probably the first thing there. What I'd like to talk to you about, Lee, you know, we are in the COVID-19 situation where um, a lot of us in uh, self-isolation, um, social distancing, uh, the, the impact on martial art training and coaching is huge. What, um, for the future, you know, what, you know, what can we foresee um, with changes? in with regards to uh, martial arts training because as i said you know there's um i said this on my blog in the traditional martial arts world are now you know vindicating you know kata they're vindicating so you know some of the solo training stuff that's out there you know you spoke to me before about uh, you know 
and again, this is the danger, just as you were just talking about then, about um, people are saying, well, in, a, uh, you know, in my catheter, I've got an arm bar. In my catheter, I've got a stranglehold. And they're saying, well, that's all well and good, but you're not learning how to apply it properly. You know, you may, you may be doing the shape and you may be able to say, oh, it's contained within that, but you're not going to necessarily automatically access it. I mean, that's, that's what I used to call the byproduct myth. If, if I do something, if I do a movement and, and it happens to be something in there, then it's going to magically come out. And I think it's very much part of the sort of the Karate Kid and now Cobra Kai mythology which I absolutely love um, the whole thing I mean uh, it's, it's, it's really really good but I do think that that's often a bad message that comes across this byproduct myth but now we're now going to definitely see huge changes I think in the way people train I mean solo training is going to be high on everyone's agenda it's a good thing in, in many many ways because you know people are going to learn more about you know what they can do when they're on their own and how that can benefit for them and they can bring out some good stuff but of course the danger is we adapt to our surroundings and we mold to our surroundings could you explain to me a little bit more about what you think is going to happen in the future um, when we all finally all get back together and start sparring and start drilling together yeah yeah sure so so i think we've got it's a, it's a double-edged sword as, as you're kind of you know discussing here is one you're going to have lots of people in the traditional i'll put that in air quotes tr traditional karate world who study and do a lot of solo training in their usual group classes as well as now in the situations we're in and feeling like you said vindicated that they were doing the right kind of training all along and i think we've got to make sure that we don't lose sight of the purpose of solo training and i think unfortunately i think what's going to happen is lots of people now are going to get very good at solo training for the sake of getting good at solo training i, I think either you mentioned it privately or on on your podcast you know the idea of this this like taibo or your know, combat fitness is i think it's going to get really popular and people are going to be throwing punches strikes elbows not for the sake of getting good at fighting techniques but to have a workout at home and so that's that's one issue we've got to be careful of and it's going to change the way we do our techniques of course a lot of people aren't going to have impact equipment at home to use so pads or bags lots of different variations are going to happen um, and i think even with the, the ground and the i'm looking down at the moment to my floor the, the flooring we have that's going to change and footwork's going to change because we're going to be in more enclosed spaces so all these little things are going to add up and i don't think we're going to realize them until we're back in the class with each other. And these things are then gonna pop up when we're sparring or when we're, we're throwing a punch a bit strange or a kick a bit strange, because for the last, I don't know, six months, we've been making sure our knee's been in a certain position so we don't you know, hit, the, hit the side of the table. We're gonna have all these like weird things cropping up, which um, we're not gonna really know about until the future happens. But I think the important thing to remember as we're doing this is to remember the reason for your solo training. Like, let's, let's try not get good at solo training just because that's all we can do now. Let's remember. Um, and it comes to visualization, really. It's like when I do my solo training, all visualization-based for me. I'm, I'm not, and I know this is the same for everyone, I don't do kata as like form of you know, physical meditation. If I'm practicing fighting motions and moves, I've got to have the intent in my head what those moves are doing. I can't just walk through moves in a meditative state or for, for non-combative purposes because it, it doesn't do anything for me. If I need an exercise or workout, I, I can have a workout. If I want to practice my fighting techniques and have a workout, I, I can do both together. But I've just got to you know, be mindful. Yeah, I'm training combative techniques and a byproduct of that is you know, I'm going to get a bit sweaty and, and you know, might be improving my fitness. But it's, it's all based on intent. And I think the one thing we've got to, lockdown as we're, as we're training like this is 
is to make sure that that intends them. We know why we're training. Okay. Yeah, I agree completely. And another thing I think is going to be quite interesting is we're going to see a lack of importance on some of the things I think a lot of traditional martial artists put a lot of importance on. So wearing the uniform or the gi, I think is going to become less important because there's no real need for it when you're training solely. And, and footwear or, or you know, lack thereof, as we have usually in the traditional arts, most dojos I go to, it's, it's barefoot and we're just not going to be able to train in bare feet anymore. And that changes if you're trying to do a quote unquote, you know, perfect cat or form. Now you're going to have shoes on of some kind usually. So that's going to change. And I think we're going to start to realize, you know, some of these things like uniforms and footwear which might be important for a cultural side of things and not going to be that important as, as we're doing our home training so yeah just adding that on the end excellent yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, i agree completely and then of course we're going to see different types of crime as well in the lockdown situation we are going to see one of the things i i, I mentioned recently um, is that uh, we're seeing a threefold um, increase on domestic crime so that's becoming more and more relevant. Obviously, there's going to be crime related to uh, situations in when when people are getting uh, coming together in, in groups all of a sudden to get their supplies in, all that kind of thing going on. There will be opportunistic crime. I mean, crime's always ahead of everything else, isn't it? I mean, this is otherwise we, we wouldn't have problems with crime. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, there are going to be criminals who are going to be looking into, you know, ways that they can manipulate the, you know, the current situation, the current system. How do they profit from it? In whichever way, and there's necessarily going to be monetary profit. And that, I mean, I mean, how are you know how the, you know how are the, the serial killers and the, the robbers and the muggers and uh, the fraudsters and all the other all the other types of criminals out there? How do how are they going to um, take advantage of this current situation? And I think that will raise up. And self protection again needs to be wary of that. You know, are they? You know, what's what is the enemy of today? What is going to be the 2020s onwards um, enemy that self-protection is so i think uh, from a self-protection point of view you know what is going to be the the, the future enemy at the, at the moment uh, yeah that's a really good question jamie and i think we're out of time for now but we're going to have to carry this on i think we were hoping for a two-part i think we might hit three or four parts so we got we got a full-on crossover event going on here so i'll leave that there now thanks for for coming on and i'll catch you soon Thank you very much.